I, I'm going to go ahead and not apologize um, because I don't think it needs apology, but I am going to let you know this series, uh, what we're going to talk about, especially this morning and in coming weeks, is so heavy. This is not gospelite. This is not theology, uh, but with less carbs and less sugars and fewer calories. Okay? I'm going to warn you. Some of the things we're going to talk about are heavy doctrines. Okay? I'm not going to try to be so heavy that I sink to the bottom <laughs> and take you all down with me. Okay? But I want you to know that if we are going to really talk about God the way we need to in this series, we're going to have to go deep. So if there's something that, that you hear me say and you're just like, I have no clue what you're talking about, write it down and ask because I would love to help you. I would love to be able to take you deeper and, and, and I certainly don't... This is, this is an area that, man, that you start probing the depths, you find out there's way more depths than you can probe, okay? But, um, but I do want you to know, we're not going to be tiptoeing around God. We're going to go straight into the thick of theology with this series. So that being said, let's all stand together and let's read. We're only going to read two verses this morning. But man, is it a powerful two verses. Deuteronomy chapter 5, we're going to read verses 6 and 7 and laser focus in on verse 7, okay? So Deuteronomy 5, verses 6 and 7, this is the word of God, and if you let it, it will change your life. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Pray with me. Father, help us as we look at this first commandment to not get lost in the weeds, stuck in the mire. Help us find you and help us respond accordingly. In Christ's name we pray, amen. You may be seated. I told you this was going to get deep. Blaise Pascal. Blaise Pascal was a mathematician, a philosopher, and a theologian because apparently he just didn't have enough to do. Uh, and he was preeminent in, in all of those fields. He was, he was a really great mathematician, really great philosopher, really great theologian. He wrote, he wrote a work called The Pensies, which translates to the thoughts. And in his thoughts, he makes uh, some astounding observations about humanity. This is one thing he says. It is natural for the mind to believe and for the will to love. So that for want of true objects, they must attach themselves to false. He's talking about the fact that we are so prone, so wired to worship, so wired to believe and love something outside of ourselves that if we can't find it in the true thing, we will put anything in its place to try to have something there. If you want proof, um, I don't know, 5, 5.30, 6 o'clock, whenever that nightly news happens to come on on the channel you like, just, just watch that for a little bit. And you will watch people substituting all kinds of things for the true God. It doesn't take very long. 
You see, we are in a culture that has tried to push away God. And because it's trying to push away God, it has to have something to fill the void. And no matter what that might be, whether that's personal affirmation or whether that's politics or whether that's sports or whether that's money or fame or fortune or whether that fill in the blank, whatever we try to put in its place, it just doesn't work. In fact, Pascal even talks about that. Several hundred years before there was even a thing called America, Blaise Pascal observed that we will try to fill this place within us that God belongs. We'll try to fill it with all kinds of other stuff and we'll fail in the process. His conclusion is this. The infinite abyss can only be filled by an infinite and immutable object. That is to say, only by God himself. If you've ever heard the expression, there is a God-shaped hole inside each and every one of us, this is where it comes from. And there is a God-shaped hole. Now, I don't, I don't remember much about my preschool years, but I, I, I vaguely have a memory of, and, it, and it's more of because I've been told than I actually remember the event. But my papaw used to like, or my papaw used to like to play a game with me. My pawpaw thought it would be funny. I would, I'd get the pieces and I'd put them in. You know, they, they had different shaped pieces. They the circle piece and the square piece and the star piece. And, you know, you'd put them in certain holes, right? I would put them in the holes. And when I wasn't looking, he'd switch them around. And I'd, and I'd look and I'd say, no, pawpaw. No, pawpaw. They go this way. And I would move them back to where they belong. Even I recognized at just a knee-high to a grasshopper kind of age, even I recognize that that doesn't go in that hole. That hole is a different shape from that object, and it doesn't work. There is a God-shaped hole, and, and people are desperate to fill it, so much so that they will find anything and everything they can to jam into that hole. But it just doesn't work. The abyss is too big. He recognized something fundamental about humanity. We need something outside of ourselves that can give us meaning. We need a purpose. And it has to be connected to something that doesn't depend on us, something that doesn't derive from us. And the only thing that can fill that greatest need, that abyss that Pascal writes about, is God. Without God, the hole will never be filled. So when God begins his ethical instruction to his people, he starts with himself. We talked about verse 6 last time. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Last time I told you that this is who God is. I am the Lord your God. And what he has done, I brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And it's based on who he is and what he does that affects how we are to live. The very next thing he says is that first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. Uh, let me make one quick observation. You don't get no other gods before me unless you first recognize that I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. You need verse 6 before you can ever get to verse 7. You have to recognize who God is and what he has done before, before you can begin to fulfill his commands. When we know who he is and what he's done, only then can he make the difference in how we live. And that's kind of the whole point of this, right? 
The whole point of these Ten Commandments is to, to translate who God is and what He has done into the way that we live our lives. It's to build our ethical system on the foundation of God's nature and His works. Look at, look at verse 7. and This time let's read it a little slower. You shall have no other gods before me. Now I think this is more than just a command not to have a little golden statue on your nightstand that you pray to. I think this is telling us about the nature of God and it's showing us how we should respond. Two questions we're going to consider this morning. The first is what does the first commandment teach us about God? What does it actually teach us about God? Because if we don't get the picture of God that this commandment is painting, we're not going to be able to fulfill the command that he's issuing. Okay? So let's get that straight first. If we do not get who God is, how are we going to be able to live in light of that? We won't. A couple of observations. There are many more, but I tried to boil it down to some basics, some essential things that this commandment teaches us. First, God is peculiar. I could have used the word unique here. God is altogether totally different. He's in a class by himself. And scripture is replete with, with various uh, passages that point to God's uniqueness. In fact, God himself even says he's unique. In Isaiah 46, 9, and this is not the only one in Isaiah. These are, there are multiple ones in Isaiah, but Isaiah 46, 9 is an example. He's talking about the things that he's done before, and he says, remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Now don't just take it from God's mouth himself. Take it from Hannah. Hannah, the, the mother of Samuel, she is trying and trying and trying and can't have a child and she's depressed. And every year that other wife uh, of her husband's, uh, of, she is just, she is bragging about all the kids she has and how they're doing great in school. And she's got the, my kid's an honor roll student and you don't even have a kid bumper sticker on the back of her car. I mean, she, it is just gloat fest. And Hannah is depressed. She doesn't even want to go to the, the, the annual sacrifices because she knows she's going to hear about it all over again. If there's, there's a lot of reasons not to have multiple wives. One of them is because, let's just face it, let's just face it, we need to be devoted to one. Kind of like we need to be devoted to one God. Isn't it? But she goes and she prays and Eli, the priest, who apparently is such a spiritual man, and in such spiritual days that he doesn't even think she's praying, he thinks she's drunk. What does that tell you about society at that point, right? Eli, Eli accuses her of being drunk. He says, no, I'm not drunk. I'm, I'm just, I desperately want God to give me a child. And he says the religious thing, well, may God grant your request. Well, God does grant her request. Listen to what she says about God after he grants the request. This is 1 Samuel 2.2. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Even pagan kings recognize God's uniqueness. Daniel 3, Nebuchadnezzar builds this giant gold-plated image. 
and demands that all these people who are working for him in the province of Babylon are all there to gather to worship at the feet of his image and three snotty Hebrew boys won't do it. And Nebuchadnezzar says, I'll show you. He throws them in a furnace and it turns out that no, God's got them. After the deliverance, here's what he says. Therefore, I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins. And here's the reason. For there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Even Nebuchadnezzar recognizes this is the real deal here. This isn't just a command that we shouldn't have other gods. This command shows us that there are no other gods. Now, there might be other things that pretend. There might be other things that people think are other gods. But there is no one like the Lord. He's, he's completely different from us, too. It, it's not like God is kind of like us, but just bigger. It's not like God is like us, but he, he, he doesn't get gray hair because he doesn't really age. It's not like God is like us, but his voice can get louder. Or he's just in more, he's just got more power, more control. It's not that he's just better than us, it's that he's completely different from us. You see, we are dependent. We need something outside of ourselves in order to exist. God does not. God doesn't need oxygen to breathe. God doesn't need a place to put his feet. I mean, he rides on clouds. You ever tried riding on a cloud? It don't work. We're too heavy. He's not. But yet, who is as heavy as the Lord? See, so that's the thing. He is totally different. We change. He does not. We are constantly in flux. We're growing. Growing this way. Or this way. Growing this way. Our bodies are changing. Things don't work like they used to. Things don't heal as fast as they used to. Yeah. I learned that lesson with that boot on. See, we are subject to change, but he's not. We're constantly in need, but he is not. He doesn't need anything. He's, he's peculiar. He's different. There can be no other gods before him because there are no other gods to come before him. And by the way, that before me, that does not just mean uh, you can worship me as number one as long as there's number two, number three, number four. I don't know, Pastor, put it this way. What would, what would your wife say if you came home to her and say, honey, you're my number one, but I got a number two over here and a number three over there. You, he said, I know what mine would say. Go to number two or number three because you don't have number one anymore. Right? There's no other gods. There's not a number two, number three, number four. There's just him. God is peculiar. He's also preeminent. Deuteronomy 6.4 puts it this way. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now that one, that can mean a lot of different things. It, that, that's, that's one of those play on words because it can mean that he's single by himself and that's part of it. Only God is God. Okay, we just talked about that. But it also means not just that he's the only one, but that he's number one. He's first. He's preeminent in his existence before everything else is created. Psalm 90 verse 2 says, Before the mountains were brought forth, 
or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting you are God we don't have a God that's created we don't have a God that begins to exist by his very nature he is the one that brings all things into existence and so he's first in his existence he's also preeminent in his importance he's not just number one but he's the most important one He's the one upon whom all things depend. Job 12, verse 10. In his hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. Paul kind of riffs on that when he's speaking to some individuals in Acts 17. He says, for in him we live and move and have our being. The first commandment brings us face to face with a God who is important. He matters. This isn't a God you can brush off or ignore. This isn't a God that you can kind of only pay attention to every now and then. As long as you fulfill some certain duties every now and then, you're fine. You know, don't go too long without giving him some kind of attention. But for the most part, he's okay by himself over in the corner. That's not this kind of God. This is a God who is preeminent. And not to get too far ahead, but we need to treat him as such. We'll get to our, how we do that in just a little bit. Third thing. He's peculiar, he's preeminent, he's also possessive. This one might be a little bit harder to sense in the commandment. But pull, look back at verses uh, 6 and 7, Deuteronomy 5, verse 6 and 7. Look, look at it closely. Look at the language he uses. Don't just look at the words themselves, but how he's saying them. I don't think he's just saying, I am the Lord your God. I don't, I, he's not He's not Ben Stein in Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Bueller, Bueller. He's not doing that. I think this is a very emotionally uh, driven text. I, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Do you hear the possessive nature of these words? He's saying, you're mine. You belong to me because I bought you. I paid for you. I redeemed you. I rescued you. You are mine. In fact, God uses the phrase my people more than 160 times in the scripture. And quite a few of them are very similar to Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31, 33, this is God speaking. For this is the covenant I will make. With the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. See, before he wrote it on some tablets, but those tablets got broken and he had to rewrite them on the tablets. And those tablets got hidden and eventually would get carried away and nobody even knows where they are now. If they've been destroyed with the ark or whether they're sitting in some kind of cave somewhere that people haven't found, we don't even know where they are now. He says, I'm not going to have to worry about tablets in because I'm going to write it straight on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. Do you hear the passion that God has for his people? He's possessive of them and I don't blame him. He's gone through way too much trouble. God loves you so much that he is willing to move heaven and earth for you willing to become a human being, endure the persecution 
of men who think they're better than they actually are die on a cross, a cursed death, and then rise again and offer you forgiveness from the very sins that killed him in the first place. Do you realize how much he has to love you in order to do that for you? No wonder he's possessive of you. Child of God, you were expensive. Are you living like you're worth the expense? He's not just possessive of his people. He's also possessive of his glory. We read Psalm 46.10 and we often stop after the first part. Be still and know that I am God. But look how he continues. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. In other words, I'm going to have my glory. He says in Isaiah 48 verse 11, for my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. Do what? He's talking about restoring his people. And he's not doing it because of our, he's not doing it for our righteousness. He's not doing it because we're worth it. He's not doing it just in the sense that, that we are so good that God has to have us on his team. He's doing it for his sake. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. God is possessive of his glory. And what you're probably realizing right now is that, man, this is a whole lot more than I bargained for. I thought we were just going to talk about the fact that we shouldn't be praying to some kind of image. I thought this was just a commandment. I didn't realize this is, this is like a theology deep dive. In fact, do you know why this is the first commandment? Because this is the first commandment. If you're going to even have a chance at the rest of these commandments, you've got to get this one right. God didn't put this one first because it was the first thing on his list. God didn't even put it first just because that's the way treaties ran. In that day, a suzerain vassal treaty, the suzerain would be the, the conquering king, the vassal would be the, the less powerful king. They would make a treaty, and one of the first things they'd do, the suzerain would identify who he is and kind of the historical background, and then he'd say, all right, here's what I expect of you. And the first thing was always a call to exclusive covenant loyalty. You're not going to be able to make treaties with other kings. You're only making a treaty with me. God doesn't put this here just because it's a call to exclusive covenant loyalty, though it is. And we'll talk more about that in just a second. He puts it here because it matters the most. Having no other gods gets to the heart of our sinful nature. So what does it actually require of us? What does this actually require? We know God's peculiar. We know that he's um, preeminent. He's possessive. And, that, and that's not the only thing this commandment shows us. Those are just three things. What does it require of us? I'm going to skip some things in here, Carrie, so we'll move pretty quick. I just mentioned that exclusive covenant loyalty. The Bible has a word for that. It's the word love. In fact, it's the word chesed. You've heard me talk about that. In recent months, God's covenant love is a requirement for us. We must love God alone. We cannot give loyalty to any other God. We must love God alone. That's why Deuteronomy uh, chapter 6, he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. 
We cannot love God with only half of a heart. We can't love him with half of our soul. We can't love him with half of our wit. And we can't love him with half of our effort either. Half-baked Christianity is sin. The first commandment requires that we give God everything. We must love him with every fiber of our being, every breath in our lungs, every ounce of our effort, every beat of our heart. We cannot have a heart divided between two loves. Jesus even says, no man can serve two masters because he's going to love one and hate the other or he's going to serve one and despise the other. Nothing, not our way of life, not our occupation, not our hobbies, not our obsessions, not our pet sins, not our sources of pride. Nothing else can receive our love. Only God can. What about the command to love your neighbors? Well, that's just God's love extending to them, isn't it? Especially to our closest neighbors, family. Our exclusive covenant loyalty belongs to God alone. We must love him alone. Second, we must worship God alone. Not only do we love him alone, we must worship God alone. First commandment, if God's unique, if he's peculiar among all the things that men try to worship, if he's the one who's preeminent, That means that we can't worship anything else. I want you to read the passage in Deuteronomy 8 that's on the back of your thing. But I'm going to skip down to verse 19 of that passage. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. God's not mincing words here. And see, this is a prevalent danger for us. We're comfortable. Many of us, uh, we've got good jobs or we're retired from good jobs. We, we've got enough to get by. We don't have to worry about putting food in the pantry, keeping a roof over our heads. Some, some of us have a harder time with that of others. I recognize that. But even still, compared to the rest of the world, we're in pretty good shape. We have the blessings of God in so many different ways. John, you just prayed a few minutes ago. Help us to remember the blessings that God's given us because it's easy to forget that God gave them. And it's easy for us to think, look at what I've done. That's exactly what the Israelites were going to do. We think we did it. And that's breaking the first commandment. Anytime we let ourselves cease giving God the worship he deserves, we break the first commandment. We turn to false gods. Maybe it's not Asherah or Molech. Maybe it's not Kamash or Baal or any of the ones that are mentioned in the Bible. Maybe we're not burning our children in the fires to false deities, though some are cutting them up before they're even born. But we've got our own false gods. We bow before the gods of comfort and ease. Hundreds of TV channels or college football teams. We prostrate at the idols of kindness and voting for a political party. Our hearts are perpetual idol factories. I think it was Aquinas that came up with that terminology. And our good fortunes often crank those idol-making factories into high gear. No matter what we substitute in for God, it doesn't deserve our worship. Only God does. Third, we love God alone, we worship God alone, and very closely linked, we must serve God alone. You know the words serve and worship often go hand in hand in the scripture. Deuteronomy 10 says, And now, O Israel, what does the Lord require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord which I am commanding you today for his good. What does God want of you? Love him. Serve him. Do what he's commanded you to do. 
I mentioned earlier the verse, uh, Matthew 6, 24, where Jesus says, no man can serve two masters. He ends that by saying you cannot serve God and money. You just go ahead and take out money and throw whatever else in. It, it still works. You can't serve God and comfort. You can't serve God and happiness. Just because our Constitution says we have the right to pursue happiness doesn't mean it should be our most important pursuit. There's no substitute for our service. God demands not only our loyalty, but our allegiance too. Someone uh, once said, I don't know who originally came up with this, but they, they basically said, you become what you worship. And it's true. Whatever you give your adoration, whatever you give your attention, you'll begin to give your appearance before long. Serving God makes us more like God. We seek to demonstrate our love and adoration for God by obeying his commands. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. We live out Paul's admonition in uh, Colossians chapter 3. Whatever you do, doesn't matter. But whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. Watch this. You are serving the Lord Christ. And as we do that, we become closer and closer to him. Not just in relationship. We become closer to living like him. We begin to fulfill the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. God, please forgive us when we put another God on your throne. No matter what it may be, no matter what we're tempted to worship, to serve, to love, Forgive us when it's not you. God, would you reclaim your throne in our hearts? If we put another God there, when we, when we start to divert away from you and begin to worship something else, when we start to take the adoration away from you and give it to someone else or something else, would you kick them out of the throne and take your rightful place? Would you be God in us? Because there's no other God but you. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for what you've done. Now help us live like it. In your holy name, we pray these things. Amen.